So we are in the fourth Sunday of Advent. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. We've been in Matthew 1 and 2 during our time uh, in Advent. I'd love to pray with us, and then we'll jump in. Father, as we we move some, some into travel over the next week, some being at home, some of us feeling lonely, some of us feeling the pain of loss this last year, all kinds of emotions that can arise as we move towards this wonderful day, um, expectations that we put on ourselves, all the things, Lord, and I just pray that you'd help us to, to rest, to remember your peace, ask for your presence to guide us. As we look at this text, I pray that you would minister, open our hearts to hear what you have to say to be teachable and humble. Thank you for this community. I pray you'd move among us, stir our hearts more deeply. I pray our hearts would be strangely warmed by the truth of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Cool. So in, in the book, uh, Good Faith, there was a survey. It was taking those, uh, taking those documenting a few things about our cultural landscape, and it was interesting enough for me to bring it up with you this morning. 84% of Americans, through the study, Believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. So eight and a half out of ten people would say that would be the case. Uh, Further, 86% believe that to enjoy yourself, you must pursue the things you desire most. Furthermore, 91% affirm this statement. To find yourself, look within yourself. So we have this kind of this landscape that we're in that's just a pretty self-focused landscape. Uh, some of that is, can, can be a level of health when it comes to kind of understanding who you are so you can walk out your gifts and callings and what God has given to you. But oftentimes that can kind of turn on itself and kind of become a dead end in and of itself. And we can find this self-focus outside the church, inside the church, and it's leaving us hollow. If that becomes the end in life, to, to uh, experience the, the pursuit of happiness as the primary goal in life, it becomes uh, a, a hollow uh, promise. It becomes a promise that can't fulfill itself, a promise that's given that can't fulfill itself. And so in the Christmas story, it it calls you to see your own and my own self-centeredness and invites us to worship a king who has the power to free us from within. And so in this this chapter, we're going to be reading a a section of chapter two. Uh, We're going to meet an individual and a group of individuals. The individual is Herod, and the group of individuals is the wise men or the magi. And, and we're going to walk through that together. So Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, uh, we read this. And after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly ascertained and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. 
And they sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. All right, so let's, let's break this down a little bit. We, we hear, in the days of Herod, one thing we've been talking about frequently throughout this uh, season of Advent is this collision course of the greatest myth, greatest fictional story ever to be written in the history of mankind, and the time stamp of that story coming into our world in real time and space. We talked about that C.S. Lewis quote, that it's not, it, it is a myth and it is history. It is, a, it is both happening at the same time. So the greatest story ever told took place in the days of Herod, in the time of a ruler that we know of in history named Herod. History colliding with fiction and myth. It's not a mere fairy tale, a fairy tale that came true. And, and we know a little bit about Herod. Herod was a bad, bad man. He was a vicious ruler. He was violent. He was tyrannical. He was wicked. He was unreasonable. Same with Herod. We see that this ruler heard of these ones that came from the east. They were the wise men or the magi. They were astrologers or magicians. Wise men from the east, not your typical Jewish person. They were not Jewish. Some scholars scholars would say they were from Persia. And so they came, Gentiles, coming to hear about this Christ child. Matthew's doing something here, sidebar. He's, he's introducing, we hear about the Messiah in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, we hear about these non-Jewish people coming to worship Jesus. And the very end of his book, the end of his gospel, we hear that Jesus tells us to go and make disciples of all nations. And so he's, he's bookending these important moments that are taking place on the front end and the back end of his gospel. But um, we see... Uh, the question is, what did they come for? What did, what did these magi, these wise men come for? They came on a mission. They came because they believed that this Christ child, this, this individual, uh, was in the city and they wanted to come and they wanted to worship him. And so they show up and they ask the king, the, the one ruling in that space, that geographic region, they asked him, where is the king? It's interesting. If you go into a throne, if you go to a palace that has a throne and you ask the one on the throne, where is the king? The assumption is that I'm not the king, right? The assumption is, though I'm very clearly on my throne in my palace of ruling my kingdom, if someone asks you, where is the king? It's going to cause some things to come up within. And if you're a bad, bad man like Herod, some really wicked things are going to come out from within. The word here, it says disturbed. I'm sorry, it says troubled. Other translations say disturbed. It's one of the greatest understatements in the Bible. It wasn't simply that he was just mildly troubled, bummed out, if you will. No, he was, he was enraged. He was deeply troubled that there could be one that could take the throne that he has, and he was going to do whatever he could, needed to do to remove that one from the earth. So Herod, he inquired. So this in- inquiry is not the, the thing we learned in our marriage weekend, the gentle startup. Right? This isn't a, a gentle engage. You want to engage some strategic questions to be curious, understand what's happening to these wise men. No, he simply wanted to know what was, uh, what was taking place so that he could kill this kid. He wants to figure out where is this king child, and I'm going to do whatever I need to do 
to kill him. That was the understanding he was looking for. So Herod pulls them aside. He meets with them privately to kind of come up with a plan. And the plan is this. It's manipulation. I'm going to ask you, will you go find this child? And after you worship this child, I want you to come find me. And I'm going to come with you. And we together are going to worship this child. So as soon as you're done, come back, find me. And us together will go and we shall worship this child together. Again, lies upon lies. Nothing that he wanted to do. His one objective was to kill this child, this king that he's heard about. And so the the story continues, and we're going to actually go back to this at the end of our time together. A few high points that I want you to know as we're kind of navigating, we're going to pause, go to the... uh, a little later in this chapter, but some high points that we're going to see here that we're fast-forwarding for now. We see that they, they see a star with great joy, exceedingly filled with joy and rejoicing. They go to this child. They, they fall down and they worship this child and they give their frankincense and their myrrh and their gift to this child. And then they're warned to not go back to Herod. So that's what we're missing. We're going to get back to that in a little bit. So the story continues uh, with another dream. In verse 13, it says this. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, it says, took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. So another dream occurs. Another dream is given to Joseph, and he, uh, it's a directive dream. We have four dreams in Matthew 1 and 2 that take place. Uh, one of these is taking place here. It's a directive dream. Don't, uh, don't go, I want you to go to Egypt. I want you to go away, because Herod is, is still finishing some things up. We, we need you to be safe here. And so there's some significance, some irony, even within the the location that they are moved to in Egypt. Jesus the Messiah, surprisingly, is driven from his own homeland and becomes a refugee in Egypt. The Messiah is a refugee. I mean, the, the, the unmet expectations of what we thought the Messiah would be and the reality of what he is is so far different. See, Egypt is a place where Moses is called. Egypt is the place that God's people were delivered from, and Egypt is the place that the Christ child spent some time and in this moment, as Herod finds out about the fact that they, he had been um, tricked, he enters into the space of fury and rage. And he orders that every child, every boy, two years old and younger, is to be killed. It's a tragedy within the Christmas story. That we see in a small town of Bethlehem, likely scholars would say there's about 20 or 30 boys that ended up dying because of this. It's, again, a shocking, painful twist in the Christmas story. And so Joseph leaves, and the story continues in verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's uh, life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel, But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. 
and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This phrase here, the first three, four words we read in verse 19, it says, but when Herod died, we're going to extract two things from that statement. One, that God, in his kindness, ruling over a fallen humanity and a fallen creation, he puts limits upon evil. And he allows death to persist until his son comes again to reign and rule forever. And so here, Herod could have lived for hundreds and hundreds of more years and wreaked further and further evil, but he died. And it also reminds us as the second thing that we can extract, which is simply this, that kings come and kings go. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. But there is one king and one kingdom that lasts forever. The Christmas narrative reminds us over and over and over again. Only one kingdom and only one king will reign. Don't put your hope in anything less than that one king and that one kingdom. So Joseph receives two further dreams to now go back to Israel. And he obeyed in all of these dreams. We see that consistent. There's this phrase, uh, and he rose, or, and he rose. There's this consistent phrase. And he goes to Nazareth, and he sets up shop there. You know, in John 1, it's interesting. An individual says about Jesus, he says, what good can come from Nazareth? Like, Nazareth was not a hot spot for growth and development and where all the, the young ones were coming to, to create new shops. Like that was not, it was the armpit of the area. And yet again, another expectation that we would have thought would have been different. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. The painful reality of fear and deception and bloodshed and injustice is something that we all are too familiar with. And we see it all take place in the Christmas story. But you kind of hear this question, like, where does evil come from and why is it con continuing to take place? Does evil come from the rich who oppress the poor? Does it come from those who are immoral and irresponsible? Where does it come from? The Bible teaches that the source of evil is within the human heart. That we all have the propensity to do things that we wouldn't have thought that we could do. And Jesus came on the scene to rescue us from that reality. See, at the core of the human heart is an impulse that says, no one will tell me what to do. If we can be honest, we feel that. Some of us buck so hard against authority. Some of us buck so hard against anyone who's going to tell me what to do. And in a way, we are like Herod. And in a way, we don't want anybody to say, where is the king? Because in a way, we feel like we are the king or queen. We feel like that. We all have that. If we're honest, we're a hospital here. We take the mask off, and if we're honest, we can say that we can feel that. We feel like this more than ever in 2022. No one's going to tell me what to do, right? We, we feel that. We, we hear the echoes of the initial thoughts I had around enjoying yourself is the highest goal in life, and the enjoyment equals pursuing what you desire. In a way, we all seek to be the God of our own life. And so I have two points for us from this text this morning. The first is a little exposing, and the second one is, is quite healing. Uh, the first is this. We all have our own inner Herod within. You and I, together, me too, I'm with you, 
we all have our own inner Herod within. During the marriage weekend, Christina, who helped lead the weekend, she gave this quote that was just so poignant and acute and, and kind of just cut to the core like a clean scalpel from Tim Clinton. And it says, successful and happy relationships are not about couples learning good communication skills. Rather, they are about couples working on their innate selfishness. No amens there. We feel it. I understand. This is the inner Herod. This innate selfishness that we feel. A deep, viral desire to be innately selfish. We feel that. Much of the pain of the world stems from this painful space of self-centeredness, self-righteousness, what I do is better what, than what you do. Kind of create, I create the moral code for you and for me. A self-absorption of our own hearts. We want the world to orbit around us and our needs and our desires. Therefore, Tim Keller calls it these little King Herods that want to rule and are threatened by anything that may compromise our rule and our power. We feel that. So the question, where's the true king, is the most disturbing question possible for the human heart. Where is the king? Because I am the king. I am the queen. Why would you ask that question? Because we desperately want to remain as rulers of our lives. Herod felt it. We can feel it. See, the question assumes that we aren't the ruler of our life, that we desperately want to be. So some use religion to mask the Herodness within us, trying to put God in a position where our righteousness forces his hand rather than being won by grace and serving him unconditionally. I did all this for you, God. Now I'll put you in my debt and now you have to be controlled by my actions and my morality. It's a level, it's a way of being in control and being a Herod. And on the other side, irreligion. We claim that there is no God and we function as our own God. But at the core, we hate the question, where is your king? Because it assumes that we aren't. See, there is a king, and we are not him. There is a king who doesn't lead with shame like we do. There is a king who is kind in our mistakes. There is a king who rules with humility and perfect wisdom, the wonderful counselor. There is a king who actually has the power to fix our own brokenness and the pain in our world. There is a king, and we are not him. See, because Christ was born, we have lost the right to be in charge of our life. If we choose to follow Jesus, we have lost the right to be in charge of our life. See, he is the king now, and he's the king of your marriage. He's the king now, and he's the king of your family. He's the king now, and he's the king of your finances. He's the king now, and he's the king of your time. He's the king now, and he's the king of your investments. He's the king now, and he's the king of the hidden parts of your life. See, though we've been rescued and though we've been adopted, we still have this inner war. It doesn't just go away. The power of sin is dealt with. The presence of sin still remains within us, and we still feel this tug of war with the things we want to do, we don't do, and the things we don't want to do, we want to do. See, the power of sin is dealt with, but the presence of sin resides until we see him. Tim Keller summarizes like this. He says, there is a little King Herod inside of you, inside of us. It means you have got to be far more intentional about Christian growth, about prayer, about accountability to other people, 
to overcome your bad habits. You can't just glide through the Christian life. There's still something in you that fights it. So this inner Herod, and he doesn't just stay quiet. This inner Herod has the tendency to push us away from Jesus and towards self-absorption at all costs. So that is our reality. There's an antidote. The prescription, the antidote, the second point is the antidote for our inner Herod is the invitation of the Magi. Let's read the point where the Magi meet the baby king in chapter 2, verse 9 and following. It says this. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that had, they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh, and being warned in a dream... Not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I don't know what this star was. I'm not going to pretend like I do. Nobody does. I mean, maybe it was a planet. Maybe it was a planet and a star. Maybe it was an angel, supernova. Maybe it was a drone. I mean, it could have been all kinds of things. But whatever it was, it was drawing them to this little town of Bethlehem. It was alluring them to this place. You know, in some ways, I'm less caught up with, like, how did a virgin have a child replace within her? That's not the question I really want to find myself asking. The question instead is, is, is much more along the lines of, why would God do such a thing? Not so much the how. He, could, he created the heavens and the earth. I mean, whatever. Like, he can speak. Done. Done. It's easy. But why? The omnipotent God, now dependent on his parents to survive. Like the incarnation is just so baffling. The one who sculpted the mountain ranges now cling to his mother's finger. The divine word reduced now to a few unintelligible sounds. They enter into this home and when they saw him, they it says they they uh, they saw him and they and they fell down and worshipped. A recognition of one who was superior than them. And they provided gold, a symbol of ultimate value, of spices, of costly and not common, ordinary herbs of that day. And then frankincense was this very expensive perfume they provided to them. And we see this reality of worship come off the pages in this Christmas story. See, the antidote of our inner Herod is worship. You know, my greatest addictions, our greatest addictions, our greatest habits... Our greed, our self-centeredness are not overcome with grit because I, like you, am naturally about what I want and my inner Herod can just drive me. So when someone offends you, we experience this, you know, you sit down and you think about it and you become potentially more mad. How could they? How dare they? You begin to, the inner, inner Herod begins to get fueled. Our inner Herod screams in these moments, of the pseudo-injustice that just took place. The pseudo-injustice is this. No one has the right to offend me. I'm the king. No one has the right to do so. There are actual injustices, betrayal that occur, which I'm not referencing here. And in actual injustices, sometimes reconciliation can never take place fully. I'm talking about the day-in and day-out realities when someone wrongs you and offense causes you to 
bear deep anger with them. And I feel this. Sometimes in a fight with my wife, we fight sometimes, um, my inner Herod can rage. My inner Herod can just go bonkers on the inside. How dare her not understand what I'm trying to say or vice versa. It's in these moments when Jesus confronts my inner Herod and invites me to behold how he has loved me and forgiven me. I mean, I've felt this recently. I don't know, when you guys prepare for sermons, you might feel this too. Um, <laughs> but uh, this last week, Alex and I got a little bit of a tip. It happens sometimes. And, and so I'm thinking about the inner Herod, and I'm thinking about worship, and these things are kind of on my mind. And again, when you're preparing for sermons as well, when you're, when, when you're in those moments, and, and all of a sudden, uh, God puts a, his thumb on that same area that you're preparing to preach about. Or maybe you feel that if you lead a Bible study in your work or other places like that. But man, I, I felt that. We, I, there was a little miscommunication that took place, and I felt offended. I had all the reasons in my mind why I was right. And the inner Herod, I mean, just the greatest ally, right? Like, always in support of whatever your opinion is. Like, yes, you're right. You're totally right. And they're totally wrong. 100% right. 100% wrong. Like, you feel it. And then I felt the Spirit remind me of Jesus. His mercy and humility, like this story, his sacrifice, his tenderness, and it just invites me. I don't want it. We're honest here. Like I have the tug of war in my soul. I'm like, no, but, but. And it's like, but Jesus, like totally misunderstood, betrayed, kept his mouth shut. Like I have no concept of that when being misunderstood, keeping my mouth shut. This tug of war. You know what I'm saying? Like this tug of war in my soul where I'm, I'm seeing Jesus and I'm seeing the inner Herod, and it's going back and forth, and my heart just becomes tender. If I let it, sometimes I suppress, and I just get on my phone. Am I being too honest? You know what I'm saying? Like, we just numb ourselves from, from feeling these things. But man, I feel the draw of the Spirit, even in the last week. Just, man, consider Jesus. Consider his humility. And it, it begins to melt. Like, if we let it, the humility tenderness, the care, the kindness of Jesus has the power to melt us as we behold him. That melting is the little Herod within. It's beholding, it's worship, it's the removal of our focus on us that invites us into a much more beautiful story. Our addictions, our habits, our greed, our self-centeredness is unraveled again and again as we behold the awe and wonder of the grace and kindness of Jesus. See, the goal isn't to go from addiction and greed to an immorality to the other side of this pendulum, which would be to be a Pharisee. That's not the goal. Our little Herod yearns for control, and in both scenarios, there's control there. The goal is to be won by the grace of Jesus and to enter into the narrow path of peace and trust and surrender. See, our journey to combat our inner Herod is real, but friends, there's something potent, something beautiful, something lovely, something awe-inspiring that stirs the soul, and it's found through beholding the Christ within the Christmas story. See, the first time you hear this story, it, it sounds magical. It sounds too good to be true. It sounds ridiculous that God would do such a thing. And it's designed to be that way. See, the theme of the Christmas story is worship. You go throughout 
the scriptures in Luke 1 and 2 and Matthew 1 and 2, we see this reminder of worship. We just read it with the Magi, but throughout Luke chapter 2, I'm going to throw a couple slides up here. Luke 2, 10 through 14, we heard about it this morning when we heard about the, the shepherds. Um, Luke, both TVs aren't working. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you. Again, to God be the glory. Um, uh, Luke 2, uh, 10, 1 through 14, um, which would be right here in, in the Bible in front of me. It says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased, filled with worship. You go a little later in 18 and 19, and verse 19 says, And, and Mary treasured all these things in her heart. That's nothing less than worship. And then you fast forward to Luke 2, 33, and it says, And his mother his father and his mother marveled at what he was saying. The whole early chapters of the life of Jesus is filled with worship. The story compels us to wonder, how? Why? How would the creator go to such cost to rescue us? How would he love us unto death to pay for our sin? Why would he be so kind and so patient? It's here that we want to dust off the familiarity of the story and allow it to cause our hearts to be awakened again. The Christmas story um, and the Christmas song, Mary Did You Know, communicates this. I prefer CeeLo Green's version, um, which, again, it says this. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. And it goes on, it says, Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? See, the story compels us to worship. The antidote for our inner Herod is worship. And here's the problem. Along the way, it just becomes meh, meh, know the story. Along the way, it gets wrapped into the Disney classics. Meh, Simba defeats Mufasa. Meh, the, the prince saves Snow White. Meh, love breaks the beast out of his beastliness. Meh, God came to rescue us in, in the humblest of ways. It just becomes kind of wrapped into the, another story. Man, and that's, that's, what, that's what suffocates the, the beauty and the wonder of what this story can be. See, the more we hear it, the more we're tempted to become familiar. And the more we come, become familiar, the more our worship becomes muted. And the more our worship becomes muted, the more difficult it is to have the potency to overcome the inner Herod within us. Hear me. If you have never stood and looked at the gospel and found it ridiculous, impossible, unconceivable, I don't know if you've really understood the gospel the words that we hear in the Christmas story is that they wondered, they treasured things in their heart, they marveled, they rejoiced with great joy. It's stunning that God would do what he did. Stunning that he would enter into our story to rescue us. But our familiarity can, can steal from us. 
from the fact that God has written himself into our story. So we have these inner Herods vying for our attention, vying for us to be the center of our worlds, vying to make us have what we want, pursue what we want, our own dreams, our own selfish ways. Yet, we're invited to peer into the mystery of the Incarnation. My invitation for you is it's practical, it's deeply spiritual, it's to behold Jesus by faith. It's to behold this story in a fresh way and allowing the humility of God to unravel our wants and to invite us into something greater, something much more majestic. It's the invitation for us as we consider this text this morning. I want to close by having a moment of just quiet confession. Before we take communion, you, you go Black Friday onward, like our wants are like pulled out more than ever. I need that. I need that thing. All of a sudden, like need, wants become needs so fast. Marketing is really good and we can get sucked in really good and man, become just uh, a little bit even more self-centered. And, and maybe that's not the case for you. Maybe it's this need to build this own nest egg that you have for yourself. Or for you, it might be needing to be understood at all costs. It's different things for different people. But man, the invitation for us is to recognize that we have a, an inner Herod. And the invitation to overcome that is to do what the Magi did, which was to worship. And so I want to just lead us through a space of confession before we have partaken communion together. So if you could just quiet yourself. Father, as we close this time, we confess that we have a tendency, a consistent tendency, to yearn to be the center of our universe. We recognize it provides promises that it can't fulfill on. So Lord, I pray you'd move upon our hearts fresh over these next 30 seconds, Lord, I ask that you would bring a, a tender conviction that would draw us back to you afresh. And so, Lord, I pray that you would minister to us in these next, these next few moments of confession. For these next little bit, let's, let's just take a moment and confess areas in our hearts to God who loves to forgive. give you thanks for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you didn't leave us to ourselves. We thank you that you came. And when you ascended, you sent the spirit that we would not be orphans. We thank you that your presence is here now with us. And I pray that as we partake in communion together, you would allow us to see afresh your great humility and how you've come to rescue us, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.